Now, if you're getting background noise, um, yep. can you hear it? It's yep. a rainstorm. <laughs> oh, crikey. Yep. It's pretty heavy. Um, I was in a tent last night, but not for long. <laughs> Man, that's heavy. Hello, dear listener. Hello. Welcome back to Where Eagles There. I'm Dave. And I'm Peter. And we're coming to you from the sunny side of Eagle Issues 112 to 115. That's 12th of May 1984 to the 2nd of June 1984. Woo! Moon again. It's a moon again. (laughs) (laughs) But this time it's very much an episode of endings. Mm -hmm. During this month. Back in 1984, Prince Charles declared the National Gallery as a monstrous carbuncle on the face of a much-loved friend. Nice. It pays to enrich your word power. Yes, it does. Saying from uh, Reader's Digest. Uh, Speaking of digestible princes, um, (laughs) during this period, Prince released When Doves Cry. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Really, really good until MC Hammer got his hands on it. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of even more exotic princes, on 23rd of May... Temple of Doom was released. Ooh. You know, Junior was just asking me today whether he, at 12, is old enough to watch Temple of Doom, and I think I watched it when it came out, so I would have been around about 13, I think. So I guess the answer is yes, but it's a problematic one, isn't it? Shout out to the Black Dog Podcast who introduced me to the concept of... um, uh, What was the expression they used? I think it was a sour grapes film or something. Interesting way to work through your divorce, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) I get that reference, yes. (laughs) Also during the Barmy days of 1984, cricketer Viv Richards hits 189, a world record. Speaking of all things technical, as all Eagle readers will be, Virgin Atlantic started its flights from Gatwick. Nice, I guess. (laughs) And while on the subject of all things technical, Mark Zuckerberg was born. Oh, whatever became of him, eh? On a sadder note, Eric Morecambe also passes away. Crikey. Yes, of course. Gosh, I remember that too. I am old. It's a bit of a month. It is a bit of a month. As months can be counted in our rather slapdash bookkeeping system. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but I do take your point that this month in Eagle is uh, what you might ungraciously call a bit of a jumping off period. Well, yes, you could say that. But, you know, powder dry, things are happening in the background and not all endings are real endings. So No, yeah. no, quite. But speaking of things that may not be coming to an end, Peter. <laughs> it's Doom Lord by Alan Grant, art as ever by Heinzel. Now, a quick recap, because it seems like ages um, after saving Earth from the sinister and ruthless assassin Death Lords, the renegade alien, Olonia's Doom Lord, well also as Doom Lord Vec, has been brought to trial by his masters, the Dread Council of Nox, where after pleading mercy for Earth once more, he has won his case, but at the price of a sentence on his head instead. But there is a lifeline, exile. Doom Lord Vec is deemed too reprehensible for an honourable death, and so is banished to the world he saved to live among its inhabitants as a constant reminder of his betrayal of Nox. Heavy-hearted, Vec leaves for Earth on a ship programmed to self-destruct after arrival. Meanwhile, on the crippled space shuttle Columbia, all astronauts on board are also in dire peril with a ship about to self-destruct. Oxygen is low, (laughs) 
The ceramic tiles insulating the ship against the intense heat are failing and the ship has entered a decaying orbit. A second craft is launched, but make no mistake, this will be a recovery mission, not a rescue. As the first volunteer leaves Columbia to give his crew a nice uh, shot of the uh, Bruce McCandless jetpack stock image, mm-hmm. <laughs> he earns his comrades a bit more time, and an anxious world asks, Where is Doom Lord? Well, Columbia's orbit takes it into the upper atmosphere, and the crew aboard suffer in the heat, begin to almost burn up when suddenly they vanish reappear on another ship, a ship of Noxian design, or Martin Bauer design. <laughs> or Space 1999 knockoff design. <laughs> yes, quite. A little bit Martin Bauer, a little bit a person we'll meet in the next Eagle Annual, yes. They are reunited with their jetpacking colleague and their saviour, Doomlord, just as the shuttle explodes on re-entry. <clears throat> yes. Uh, Vic contacts Mission Control and teleports the astronauts safely home before teleporting himself to a holiday camp chalet and the waiting charms of Mrs. Sooster. The sky is lit above them with fireworks, but it's the Death Lord ship's explosion, and Doom Lord is home for good. For a week, Vic lies low. The Soosters return to Bradfield, and he too, watching the TV news, beseech him on the air to reveal himself and answer the many questions they and the people of Earth must have. Ooh, uh, missus. <laughs> Eventually he does, arriving via teleport to a TV studio where interviewer Robert Klee interrogates him on his motives. Vic reveals that he will stay on Earth for quite some time, as its warden and guardian. But Earth, of course, must be on its best behaviour. Doomlord has killed before, and he will not hesitate to do so again, if necessary. Meanwhile, in Whitehall, top MP Douglas Reeve watches in interest. He wants to believe Doomlord, but orders a watch on the alien. If it becomes necessary to destroy him, we'll need all the information we can get. Backstage, the departing Doomlord is intercepted by the show's producer, who offers him a weekly show of his own, directed by the slick Johnny Corolla, who pictures something... Not quite on brand. Doomlord shuts him down, but he'll take the gig on his own terms. Schedule the first show for tomorrow night. I will make all other arrangements. He leaves on foot for a local apartment and is followed by one of Reeves' agents, and then another agent takes over closer to the base. But Doomlord is wise to their actions and he knocks out his follower, crushing his recorder. News gets back to Reeve, and the show must go on. And that's it for Doomlord. Doomlord will return in a great new adventure soon. Doomlord's entering show business very much feels like a new beginning. Mm. Doomlord's got a snazzy new look. He has. A Death Lord skull jacket. Yep. First day of the rest of his life. And a skull t-shirt. Uh, which, you know, if we were talking about a rebellion publication, surely it would be a t-shirt available now. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> yes, uh, he's still a bit bitter about that best alien competition. He is, yes. I sort of skipped past that, but there are two episodes in here where he sort of, he's on Knox and he sort of says, you know, what good am I? I can't even get first prize in a Doom Lord look-like contest. And then the Suster boys give him a hiding, as Mr. Plumrose, of course, where they sort of suggest, oh, you know, you could call up the, the station and do your Doom Lord impersonation. You're almost as good as the real thing. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> Burn! <laughs> Johnny Corolla is, is quite an interesting fish. Yes. Um, not quite Frank Pimple. 
No, I've got a Corolla. It's it's it served me very well. <laughs> and, and the TV station, it's obviously something like an ITV outfit with around a load of fat cat managers swilling wine or in, a, in a wine bar doing deals. Mm. Why doesn't he go to the Beeb? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe he burnt his bridges there with chat with Matt or whatever it was called. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right, true. That's Doomlord. He says Doomlord will return soon. Doomlord's actually only off for a, a week. Mm. I think we have an extra long Amstel computer while some scenery is shifting in the background. Oh, yes. But how, how are you feeling with this new stage in Doomlord's life? It's it's sort of a, a coda to the previous story, prologue to the next one. It's not really an adventure in itself. No, no, it just sort of ties up a few loose ends. You know, the, the, the Death Lord ship, uh, extra TARDIS, as it were. You know, the question of, you know, what happens next is, is this going to sort of be rinse and repeat all the time is Nox going to keep coming back for him and letting him off and coming back for him and letting him off I don't believe so but watch <laughs> the space and yeah, see yeah but yeah the chat show thing that's going to be interesting I mean Johnny Corolla's vision for it is as I said very very off brand uh, Vegas Vegas <laughs> baby <laughs> we may have to do an enactment Dave <laughs> or move swiftly on Speaking of not quite Vegas, it's the Fists of Danny Pike story by D. Spence, art by Jim Burns. Oh, and now, now, question for you, Peter. Hmm. More for you, dear listener. Why doesn't Eagle have any letters listed in its credits? I don't know. It's, it's mean. Yeah, Sc- Scream did, and 2000 AD did at this time as well. So it's it's quite an interesting omission. Yeah, unfair. I don't know if we can change it now. No, probably not. Anyway, speaking of changing the past, it's nine months since young Danny's defeat by the monstrous world heavyweight Alvin Sharkey, and the young boxer and his team are signing a contract for a rematch on August the 26th. Get out the Daily Thompson Sports Calendar readers <laughs> in Reno, Nevada. Home of DIY. Reno, Nevada. Never mind. Oh, 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 everyone. <laughs> Golf clap. <laughs> a suited Sharky notes that it'll be a year to the day since their previous bout, <laughs> but Danny's not worried, even though he's only making a minor million for the fight. Would not that, pocket money prices. I was going to say, would that would that, have, <laughs> would that have been that would have been good money back then? It would have. Well, well Sharky's making four and a half, but he is the world champ. Yeah. But Danny doesn't mind. He's on form and rearing to go. Sharky isn't concerned either, and quotes the great American philosopher and political pundit Alfred E. Newman, <laughs> what, me worry, before showing off his linguistic prowess with an Ali-esque poem. I'll take Pike and Five more dead than alive, and he'll need treatment at the hospital when I send him home horizontal. Uh, it probably works better <laughs> with an accent. <laughs> Danny has a break for a few weeks romancing Miss Ashley at his definitely not haunted luxury pad, before heading back to the States with a knock em dead champ from both Miss Ashley and lovable gypsy larrikin George. Training starts in earnest, with Abe Shapiro stepping in, see, for a bit of Burgess Meredith-style instruction. Aim past the chin. Not on the chin, past the chin. He's <laughs> under. And, but while Sharky knocks his sparring partners around like skittles, Danny arrives in Reno to a surprise. They haven't accounted for the heat in training. And trainer Lyle wonders, will he be able to last eight rounds, let alone 12? Manager Arthur tries to renegotiate for an indoor venue, but no dice. 
as dependents wonder if Danny will have time to acclimatize to the local humidity. Help me, I'm melting! <laughs> Arthur and Lyle come up with alternative strategies to help Danny pace his stamina for an eight-round match. As the days fly by, Jane arrives in the US, but the lovers are kept apart to avoid distractions before the match. And at the weigh-in, Sharky is seen to be carrying a few extra pounds, but this time it's Danny who comes up with a poem for the champ. <laughs> your math is too big and your poetry's rotten. Tonight I'll be world champ and you'll be forgotten. No, Which <laughs> I remember very well. That, that stuck in my head like energizer to disintegrate for many years to come. <laughs> anyway, the day of the fight arrives at the outdoor arena of the Hotel Mesa de Oreo. The golden table? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Was Mr. Wagner hoping for a free holiday? I don't know. <laughs> Not a real place. And while Alvin Shark is busy quoting another great 20th century moral philosopher, Kenneth Williams, <laughs> I'm going to be frying tonight and Pike is on the menu. <laughs> frying tonight. Shout out to Conrad. That's, that's actually a carry-on reference. Carry-on screaming. Space spinner. Yeah. There you go. Referring to fish and chip shops, which I don't see how it would work if we were quoting an American doing it in hindsight. But yeah. it was a great laugh at the time, I'm sure. In Danny's room, things are much more somber. The press aren't let in as Danny looks at a photo of his old grand and boxing a wall before heading out to the ring. He actually boxes it. He gives it a good old thump. He, he actually boxes the next panel. Yes. <laughs> as the bell rings out, Danny glances back to Jane in the front row and the fire in Danny's heart tells him to win. Next time, the heat of battle. Well, there you go. There's a four-week build-up but given Danny's history with Sharky, I think it's a bit deserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all been waiting for this. Of all of the strips, I feel that Danny Pike has the luxury of a long run-up mm. in, in terms of its pacing. It doesn't squander its pages because Burns' artwork is so good. Yes, yes, and the pace keeps rattling along. But it's, but it's quite a different thing to, say, Doom Lord, which absolutely rattles and it rattles and rattles in a different way. Mm. And it does it in a fairly loose way right? compared with, we'll see it later, One-Eyed Jack, which just beats you around its head. Oh, it beats so you around the head with prose and density. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely dense where, where Pike is, you know, it's roomy, it's languid, and, it, and, it's, and it's good to have that. Mm. It's bobbing, it's weaving, it's... <laughs> it's ducking and diving. And, and I have noted, noted before with the sporting strips that, um, you know, the idea of having sporting matches played out over multiple weeks are a bit hard work. But like you say, with Danny Pike, it seems to have earned it. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly hard work back in the early days with Thunderbolt and Smokey, for you and I. <laughs> the kids were visually ageing between episodes. <laughs> <laughs> a luxury that Jim Burns can work around. Yes. <laughs> but speaking of luxury, <laughs> And speaking of kids, let's have a spin on the Amstor computer. Hamster wheel winding up. <laughs> <laughs> Issue 112's story is actually number 58, programmed by Colin Mitchell of Nottinghamshire. It is called The Most Powerful Force in the Universe, by A Stone and Sea Cruise. Again, no letter was credited, boo. This story confused me, uh, <laughs> because I didn't realise that the characters were staying the same every time. New York City, the Bronx, and cops, uh, led by a, an Afro-American his dark-skinned detective burst into a warehouse and there's a gunfight among them among the crates as their fair-haired quarry makes his getaway in a getaway car better than a not getaway car yeah yeah 
Beware of this man, says the caption, for he possesses the most powerful force in the universe. The villain grins slyly, but suddenly morphs, as does his pursuer. And uh, there in medieval times, our uh, pursuing hero is now a knight on horseback and a joust. So that's his game, is it? says the man. And the contest begins. The hero is the black knight, but on the nose, and is felled by his opposite. <laughs> it all gets worse. <laughs> Didn't you know? says his fair-haired enemy. In the stories, the white knight always wins. But our hero has that power, and is suddenly in a jungle with <clears throat> an enemy with a gun and pith helmet. Our hero mm-hmm. awaits in the branches above, and he strikes, transforming into a tiger. He's Tiger Man. But his enemy transforms again, and they're pirates. Our hero and his new wooden leg decide to throw in the towel one last chance. They change and become space rangers on a rocky moon, having a laser gun standoff as the air fills with a new sound. Matthew, come on, it's time to get your tea. Little Matthew and little Leroy in their makeshift costumes farewell each other across the fence. Tomorrow it's Matthew's turn to be the hero. And the boys possess the greatest power in the universe. Their imagination. Hmm. Uh, yeah, Lee said, it's, it's, it's a fairy story. Yeah. It's a very racist fairy story. Um, yeah. Yeah. Why couldn't he have just been the Leopard of Lime Street? That would have worked fine. I think Tiger Man's got something. Would have been on brand. Yeah. Speaking of in search of, of, of anything, <laughs> in search of life. <laughs> Issue 113 has story number one of all numbers by Andrew Smith of Morpeth, who I assume isn't the Andrew Smith who ended up writing for Doctor Who. No, no. Uh, what was that? Uh, Full Circle. Yeah. Yes. Script by, again, by A. Stone. Art by Boykes. Joan Boykes, who I believe is actually Juan Boykes Segales, who did oh. um, some of the early flesh in 2000 AD. And worked on Warrior and Wildcat, and most famous for the 90s one of Phantom. It's a really interesting style. It's almost sort of elements of uh, Redondo or possibly Casanovas in there. Yes, it's a very European look. Mm. I liked it. On a distant alien world, the wary captain of Zeus 7, Colonel Andrew Gawley, finishes off his report that this desolate rock shows no sign of alien life, and perhaps mankind are alone in the universe. Meanwhile, Crew members Josh Travers and Jennifer Bell are out exploring. Josh is very bored and takes a shortcut back to the base. But their moon buggy rover hits a slime trail and is attacked by a giant slug. (laughs) Excellent. Back at the command module, Professor McGuffin shows off his universal translator, (laughs) even though he has had no aliens to test it on. Just then a distress call comes through from the buggy. A rescue crew is sent out the alien and Jenny are dead, and a beaten up Josh tells of a harrowing battle and the horrible death cry of the beast, which is recorded, and then they feed into the translator, and the following words come through. Help, mother, help! Yes, the beast was but a baby, and now a monster three times as big is attacking the ship, out for revenge. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Corley's report about no intelligent life comes in, even though it is no longer valid. Mm. That's okay. That's lovely. I, I really like the Union Jacks all over all the space equipment. Yes. 
And the giant slug, again, very sort of redondo, very sort of return to Armageddon-ish. Mm, mm, mm. But otherwise, it's a th- future shock. Yeah, well... It's a standard, here's a monster, monster not what you think it is. Ah, everyone does, yes. Uh, for myself, I, I would have just about cut out the uh, second to last and the third to last panel and just had the dying scream of the alien being translated into reports so far negative, no sign of intelligent life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could imagine that would be pretty good. <laughs> but speaking of maybe something we saw coming. <laughs> yeah, uh, issue 114 has story number 999. Fancy that. Uh, Programmed by Russell Brown of Charlton St. Giles. No Hiding Place is the title by Brian Burrell. Art by John Vernon. It's May 1944. And a, oh, that makes it 40 years on. Yes. And no, no, no. And we're not quite 40 years on, but yes, it's that's, um, yes. And now... <laughs> Anniversary's Tale. Hadn't thought of that. <laughs> oh my God. 40 years on from... The date of this issue. Well, actually, nearly 41. A top German agent shoots into England. It shoots with a CH. He parachutes into England. He has one mission. Discovers the plans for the Allied build-up in, in England. Von Luger, you have the address of the sympathizer. Peter, sympathizer. This accent is not helping me. Synthesizer. <laughs> <laughs> Enemy synthesizer. <laughs> 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 It's Kraftwerk versus yes. <laughs> Peter Martins, plus the date and location of the U-boat rendezvous to bring you back. The Führer will not tolerate failure. The next day, the plan springs in to action, and at a coastal port, Von Luger disguises himself as a military policeman. He kills the original occupant of the uniform, uh, passes the guards, and photographs the armor and the men, then the troop carriers and warships. Mission almost complete. The rendezvous is in about a week, so he makes it to Martin's home, but is met at the door by Martin's mother. From Luger's contact was killed the day before in an air raid. And, the shame of it all, police search Martin's room to discover Nazi communication equipment. Luger, fearing his cover is blown, actually stays. Now, Mrs. Martin is none the wiser. Hmm. It stays in the house. Is it a house, Martin? Hmm. Uh, he hides the photos and the files in a very safe place indeed. Peter Martin's coffin, which is lying in the house. The next day, he attends the funeral, and as he's leaving, asks for the grave number so he can visit it in the next week. But didn't I tell you, dear? Pete's wish was to be cremated. <laughs> crackle, crackle, sizzle, sizzle. Yeah. Seeing his plans literally going up in flames, Von Luger returns, and fearing the Fuhrer's wrath, decides he will never return and checks out of the strip for good possibly at the end of a luger the end the end yes uh, I, I did remember it quite well and vernon's art is great and it's it's quite an economic story it's, it's not very long it's, i'd say it's one panel too long that, that, that coda of him sort of basically topping himself is necessary i don't know yeah, the, the the villains get their come up, and so we'll have an interesting discussion a wee bit later about censorship. I think. Hmm. I mean, again, I'm, it's not my job to to edit M store computer stories, but you could have pretty much ended that on a Colin Baker style crash scene and have done with it. True, but kids like them gore. You know, 
and then he died. It's, it's a nice little bundle it up for a younger mind. Otherwise, they'll be going, and then what happened? So, yeah. <laughs> and then the strip ended, unless you go to issue 115. Kidnapper, which is in fact story 11,112, programmed by David Hoare of Bridgewater, story again by Brian Burrell, art again by John Vernon. Out in the field surrounding the Hale Avionics test area, a shadowy figure takes out the guard dogs, making pains to point out the animals were now sleeping mm. peacefully, not actually put to sleep. He then breaks in onto the runway, knocks out a male steward, and climbs aboard the test flight for the new Skystreak executive private jet. On board is Mr. Norcliffe, a very picky millionaire who is not being impressed by all the gadgets and gizmos on display. Oh, I didn't get where I am today, etc, etc, etc. Kitchen's too small, plane's too slow. But before the pilot can show off the craft's best feature, the interloper emerges gun in hand. Mr. Northcote's being kidnapped. As the pilot is forced to head for a deserted airfield in Scotland, the gun-wielding thug takes a seat, strapping himself in as the, the weather ahead looks a bit bad. By the way, what was the final feature? Whoosh! <laughs> All the seats are fitted with ejectors and parachutes for extra safety. And as the hapless hijacker floats to the ground, Mr. Northcote confirms he'll be in the market for two of these lovely new sky streaks. Which aren't wanted, honest. Um, yeah, best of a bad bunch. I like the fact that the, uh, the the kidnapper's sort of saying, I know about your trapdoor, so I'm not going to be standing on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a trapdoor that they, they, they mention and avoid as a dummy before yeah. he falls into the bigger trapdoor that shoots him out the top of the boat. The skylight. Of course, if it was a collector story, the, the kidnapper would have been hired by the, the people trying to sell the thing to really show off the feature. But it's the best of a fairly average bunch of Amstel stories this run, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, Vernon's art doesn't hurt it. No, no. He, he still has that sort of issue which he, we saw in Streetwise where he had, there's a Vernon face. Yes, I mean, if you put a fake moustache on the hijacker, he could be the spy from the previous issue. Hmm. You're right. But when you're doing an anthology-style story, it matters less. No, I guess it's a repertory. It's a repertory cast. Yeah, it's re- it? Exactly. It's the John Vernon repertory theatre. <laughs> We're going to get in so much trouble, but yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> Speaking of lookalikes, <laughs> only their mothers can tell them apart. It's The Brothers by Scott Goodall, art by the Thunio Brothers. Twins Pete, Trent and his gamma-enriched ape-like brother Bob are on the run, having been orphaned in a car crash which led to Bob's mutated state. But there are more immediate problems for Bob, as the rooftop hijinks in the latest instalment have literally dropped a minute, it being a wrestling match featuring Mountain Mole and Meatface McFlannel. Now Bob is being helicoptered and then treated to a famous McFlannel backbreaker. Apologies, Conrad, uh, at Space Spinner 2000. I don't know wrestling lingo as well as you do. I would point out, yeah. this is very much British wrestling. This is a Big Daddy style on the mat style wrestling. You know, it's not... WWF cheers at 12 o'clock. Hmm. So the flannel backbreaker puts you over the knee, but not on a spanking, but quite a flanneling instead. Bob is down, but Pete fights his way to the ringside, Burgess Meredith style, and tells his brother to fight back. It's their only charge to get away before the police arrive. So while Meatface takes a victory lap, Bob leaps and bites the Scots' meaty hand. 
then hurls him into a corner post, then delivers... Och no! Och no! no. (laughs) Then delivers an expert flying head kick before the boys break out of the hall, scattering police as they go. But a half hour later, walking quieter streets, Bob experiences another terrible splitting headache, and Peter realises that his brother is getting harder to control. They need help, but first they need shelter. They head to their old home, now quiet and uninhabited. Bob breaks in effortlessly, ripping off an attic window and tearing the lock off a door downstairs, Peter rendering again at his growing strength. As they make their sad way through their empty home, Bob breaks down at a family photo, all four of the Trents in recent happy days on holiday. Pete, meanwhile, finds a letter from his dad's cousin, Richard Atherton, a famous scientist and biologist in Canada. If anyone can help Bob, it's him. But then Bob enters the study. Peter, outside, danger. A security van is pulled up, clearly monitoring the house. And out comes a patrolman and a tracker dog. The dog, a doberman called Trojan, jumps through the open door to a crouched and ready Bob. And Pete watches his brother instantly grabs Trojan mid-leap by the throat and floors him. Take that, Uncle Terry. Pete brains Trojan, more to prevent Bob from killing the dog outright. And Bob crushes the policeman's radio, decking him too, for good measure. Radios don't, don't, get, don't get good stories this month, Dave. That's the second one. <laughs> no. But well, they're like robots. You can kill a radio, you can kill a robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kill a signal. Um, Bob beats his chest like an angry gorilla, but Pete brings him to his senses. The neighbours are bound to have heard the commotion. It's time to go. By first light, they head west, deep into the country, and as the sun rises before them, Peter wonders where they can hide next. On the road, the skies open and there's a rainstorm, and Peter collapses in exhaustion. The weather's short-lived, but they're forced into a ditch also while Bob carries his brother. Clearly ain't heavy, as a furniture lorry passes and stops in a nearby lay-by. Yeah, a very inefficiently packed move as a little trucker, I must have oh, Coming to that, yes. Quietly, Bob and Peter steal aboard the van and make a home for themselves in the, as you say, Dave, very spaciously packed furniture van. I have packed a lot of furniture vans in my long life, Dave, and uh, I've never seen anything that that allows you to actually arrange a bed. (laughs) They should be ashamed. (laughs) When when your dad reads your comic and the only comment he can make is, that's a poorly packed furniture van. (laughs) (laughs) The bed's arranged. There's a table next to it. They can put a lamp on. (laughs) Uh, but Pete gets his wrist, and he knows the lorry is bound for Exmoor, so they'll head there too. They have two months until their father's cousin, Richard Atherton, arrives on a lecture tour to London, according to the letter. Two months in the wilderness of Exmoor. Do they have it in them to survive it? Next week, survival in the wilderness. So maybe they do. <laughs> That's a very excited-looking Doberman leaping out of the house, I must admit. And um, unlike the Amstel computer, dogs were harmed during the production of this story. <laughs> Do you know, I can't help. I know it's been a little bit verboten because we've been doing Scream sort of you know, yeah. off and on during the reading of, of this. But the comparisons between this and Monster are really, really close in this bracket of stories. Yes, I have to say. But the thing I'm, I'm finding is having sort of done Monster and rounded that off... Mm. I prefer the brothers. The brothers seems a bit more action and and less dreary. You know, Vanya's art is nice and moody, especially in the wet weather stuff. Whereas Monsters just a bit grim and grim dark and doomstrang and you know. Mm. While Bob is is anterior, very similar in some ways. 
Bob's more upbeat. Terry's just a bit. What do you mean I can't kill everyone? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Before I was sort of a bit down on the brothers because I was. It never sort of struck me in terms of being a story, but this this sort of picks it up quite a bit. I I, I prefer this one. I don't yeah. quite know why. Well, I I think you know despite it being sort of slightly edgy, filed off uh, for the kids, I think the brothers has well, carries a bit more emotional heft. They do harken back to the fact that you know these are boys who have been orphaned the parents aren't in the picture they've got to work it out for themselves whereas Kenny mm. I think we we agreed that Kenny was aged down or aged up in Monster between the Alan Moore episode and the you know, John Wagner taking over these guys have got more agency I mean they're mm. going into towns and they're breaking into houses and they're getting lifts on trucks and and they've got camping gear and stuff and mm. they've they have a plan they also have a plan in Monster, but they seem to have more agency about them and being proactive. They're not playing cat and mouse with anyone just just yet. Mm. Um, watch this space, but they, there seems to be more to the brothers. Where I suspect it's probably more realistic in Monster that they're they're wandering a bit aimlessly. And their their greatest enemy is actually Uncle Terry and his increasingly volatile behaviour. Yeah. Well, I don't know. They're, they're playing up the fact that Bob is increasingly suffering from migraines and headaches and there are things going on there too so i don't know there's just a very subtle difference in tone between the two and i prefer where the brothers is going with it cool very interesting the cousin coming from overseas in the more modern world the cousin would have come over for the funeral or things would have moved around differently or you know well the more modern modern world before the past six months Mm. You know, we're harking back to a time we didn't go back. If you left the country, you pretty much left for good, unless you're on an OE or something. Yes, yes. The world was a lot bigger then, yeah. Very much so. Speaking of big worlds, Peter, it's Dan Deere, Prisoners in Space. Space, 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 space. <laughs> Not to be confused with the good 1950s Prisoners in Space. Story now. Bit of an interesting development on the story front. Mm. Yeah, do tell. There's a reference in the Dan Dare story list online, which I could post a link to, suggesting that the stories after this, and I assume probably this one, are done by D. Horton, which is a pen name of Barry Tomlinson. Ah. And I think there's evidence in here to back that up. Art, as always, by the ever-wonderful Ian Kennedy. Previously on Dan Dare, the evil Mekon has used his army of clone trains to take over an unnamed alien planet, leaving Dan Dare in charge of a ragtag group of human prisoners, mostly marines, caught in the middle of a capital city-wide war. This time, as Dan's stolen fighter bomber takes out a train tank in a lovely bit of not related to the plot cover art, the mm. Mekon prepares an ambush for Robo-1 and his human platoon. Taking out the robot with an ultrasonic cannon, R2-D2 finger-in-the-plug-socket style. Wow! <laughs> Dan sees this wretched robo-side and removes the cannon nests with more rockets, only to be met by a barrage of homing missiles sent his way. Dan's ship is blown to smithereens in another stunning but slightly disjointed cover as we find in flashback that Dan has dodged destruction, jumping out of the ship's door and splashing down into an alien lake. Only then to be attacked by freaky alien piranhas with detachable dentures. <laughs> like, like gums. Yeah, gums, like gums. gums. the shark. Uh, although it's, he's with a colleague who 
who, who doesn't make it, no. Who doesn't make it, and it's sort of very um, USS Indianapolis. Yes. Well, I think that's the vibe they're going for, most yeah. definitely. But the threat quite literally loses its teeth. <laughs> yes. Photos on the Facebook page, people. Dan manages to clamber aboard some wreckage and paddle to safety. Meanwhile, the broken shell of Robo-1 is found by the escaping crew of the Investigator, all still unnamed. All still unshaven. Yeah, even the lady, possibly, yes. yes. And the specky one, Prof, tries to reactivate the robot, while unseen, a party of trained troops moves in. In issue 114, the cool and emotionless Mekon rants and raves about these annoying humans in another cool but slightly disconnected from the action dandy cover. Meanwhile, Robo-1 is repaired just in time as the trains attack, but he has no guns. Never mind. Charge! <laughs> Skittles and Boffo ensues, and the investigator crew scavenge some weapons from the fallen trains, stopping only to remind Robo-1 he's not meant to have emotions. Soon they stumble on Dan and more Marines. The Earth Party is complete, and Robo One is very emotional about it. Oh! But an aerial bombardment is heading their way. Can Dan shoot the missiles down with some stolen anti-aircraft gear? You betcha! He got a gold star in playing Missile Command and Asteroids back at the Academy. Issue 115. There is a super lovely cover of the incoming train fighters. Although again, jumping from the action of it. Mm. All Dan's missiles find their targets. Yay, high score! Well, Asteroids is a difficult game to play. We're old, we don't have the reflexes anymore. <laughs> but more ships are incoming. Our heroes are doomed, worries Robo One. But then all the incoming ships start to veer off course and collide with each other, as if their pilots had gone mad. <laughs> Almost as if they are struck by an invisible ray, Dan uses as the Marines prepare for the incoming ground attack. As the heavy assault aliens move in, Dan makes a desperate bid to wipe out the tree in armour, but he's quickly spotted. But suddenly, as the troops move in, next time, the final episode in this amazing story. And because we have the power, Peter, what? I'm going to cook the books. Oh. Because we can! But I have it read. <laughs> the trees attacking Dan melt. Help me, I'm melting! Melting into a pile of green goo. It's like a nightmare all over the battlefield. Treen soldiers burst into lime slushy mush. In his base, the supposedly emotionless Mekon takes the news very badly indeed. It appears the artificial troops from Operation Birth are unstable at the molecular level and disintegrate randomly. The Green Menace has his scientists killed and decides to cut his losses, ordering his escape pod and setting the whole planet to self-destruct. Forget about scorching the earth. So Balor gave him a duff batch, basically. Pretty much, yes. Uh, mm. Lord Baynor's revenge. Baynor, ah, yes. <laughs> Pressing their advantage, the humans steal another shuttle, unseen, and flee the planet very quickly, just before it explodes, Death Star style. Next stop, Earth. The story is over. Everyone's saved, and Robo-1 is overwhelmed. But hey, he's not meant to have emotions. Ha ha ha. Next time, a new adventure and a deadly new threat. Hmm. Um, so, hmm. yeah, quite a bit of a run around before a rapid end. Some beautiful spaceships there. Some lovely cover art, but that's, again, now I'm looking at it with my, is it Barry Tomlinson eyes on. Hmm. You sit there going, it's amazing how the plot sort of lends itself to cutting <laughs> away and having some lovely cover art. Yes, what's in the drawer for next week? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yes. But the art is fantastic by Kennedy. Uh, they're lovely covers, but 
yeah, it's it's, it's the story is quite disjointed, mm. I think. Mm. And while our schedule has been a bit futzy, there does seem to be a lack of cohesion with it. That's not a pun intended. And you know, focus on Robo One. Well, Robo One will return. Okay. Barry Tomlinson is, if he's the, the, the pen name for the upcoming stories, and this one is, you know, it's the start of a new phase of Dan Deere with Robo One. I don't want to say being Walter the Robot, but being Walter the Robot a bit. Mm. And mm. Ro- Robo Digby, possibly to take any horror and, and scariness out for younger readers. Yeah, I miss JJ. I do. JJ had a good anarchic streak. And maybe they're trying to harken back to JJ because JJ maybe was popular. But Robo One's just a bit of a, a ditherer. And interesting, dear listener, I don't know if you've seen it recently on our Facebook page. We'll, we'll, I don't know if we reposted it, but we'll definitely link it in here. The recently footage has come up from a 1980s. Oh, yeah, 1985. Hmm. Yeah, pilot for Dan Deere. And... While I find it hard to watch because, you know, the guy from Cold Feet being Dare is a bit, sits a bit wonky with me. Robert Bathurst. Yes. In Digby, they've got all the buttons ticked right. Mm. Jeffrey Hughes. So he's, um, uh, he was Eddie Yates in Coronation Street. Used to read The Eagle at at Hilda Ogden's dinner table. He did. (laughs) But Digby was handy. Mm. Robert One isn't handy. Robert One's a skittle. (laughs) (laughs) A weeble. He's a pepper pot. He is. Yeah. He's a benevolent Dalek, and we can't have those, can we, Dave? Well, while he's useful sometimes, he's quite ineffectual most of the time. But mm. again, watch the space. Indeed, redemption may come. Speaking <laughs> of of having what what's due to you coming, shall we leap to regular features? Let's leap to regular features. Starting with the covers, as previously noted, they're all down there. They're all beautiful, mm. but yeah, they, they feel like maybe editorial choices. We've got a shot of Dan Stolen fighter blasting a tank, and again, alien fighter, all wonky angles and everything. Uh, tree and scientists watching Dan's ship explode, issue 114. The emotionless, inverted commas, Mekon, ranting and raving, which actually reminded me of something I quite liked about the newer Garth Ennis steer, where they sort of go into why the Mekon, who is meant to be this cold, logical being, let Dan push his buttons. It's really quite interesting. Because sometimes he just feels too much, you know? <laughs> well... It's not easy being Greek. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's one of the things I found interesting with um, when we were listening to other people cover the 2008 Dan deer and comparing it with the Pat Mills deer. Because mm. Pat Mills got that the Mekon's the soulless, cold being. And it's a theme that runs through Mills's work with his various villains mm. and things like Slain and other stuff. Mm. The idea that the Mekon gets wound up by things is a bit atypical to the original Mekon. So just it made me think of that. It was quite interesting. Um, mm. But my my pick of covers is issue 115, Treatment Fighters on the Attack. It is rather nice. I mean, I did quite like 113, which is the aforementioned trained scientist uh, looking at Dan allegedly exploding. Yes. But I like it in spite of itself because I think painted it would have been gorgeous. There's some really nice um, work and hatching mm. in the, the black and white version that we get from Kennedy, which is you know, coloured in the newsprint style. Yeah. But painted. Oh, oh yeah, that would have definitely. been really nice. Well, having said though, the trained fighters painted might be good too we haven't included the the train soldiers melting that is a brilliant cover but mm. technically it's outside of this no, that's, issue's that's, that's next installment yeah yes 
Moving on to the inside, we have a new thing inside. We have the Eagle Extra, which is like a single page of supposedly cool stuff featuring Heroes of Eagle and Streetwise. Chica -chica. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it starts off with a single page showing a crime being committed, and you're meant to look at it for 10 seconds and then close the book and then answer the questions that are printed on the page that you're not supposed to look. But, um... <laughs> did you try it, Peter? Yeah, I did, quite some time ago. It's a, it's a how good your memory game, which, you know, at my age, is just not fair. <laughs> so, the stakes would have been much higher. The thing is also, you're primed to look at obvious things the police might ask you when you're reading the comic book, but question number 10, it asks you how many other people saw the crime, and you're sitting there going, am I going to be one of the people in the picture? Because you, you mm. you've got the back of someone's head there. Is that meant to be me or is it my point of view? So yeah, grumble, grumble, whinge, whinge, moan, moan, streetwise grumble. <laughs> yes. I need so. context. I need context. <laughs> What's my motivation? <laughs> it looks like three if, if you count the person in the middle of the picture plus the older couple in the yes. back. Uh, well, of course, the other criminals witnessed the crime too. But uh, yes, and the driver. There could be an urchin in the chimneys up above. Who knows? <laughs> Go wild. The answer apparently is, oh, I don't know. But the it, answers aren't printed. You're being meant to look at the page the questions are written on. Yes. To check. Yeah. It's sort of like there's something a bit futzy about the logic of it all. But I, I assume it's pretty much old annual type fare. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. There are a couple of those this month, aren't there? <laughs> Things that belong in annuals. I was going to say, speaking of annual type fair, there's the crossword with the Doomlord, which we've mm. recently seen something very similar in the annual, which is basically squeeze random letters into boxes. I was wondering whether we'd already seen a Doomlord, a crossword. Didn't we see it in the 1982 annual? Or 1983 annual, I suppose it would have been. Yeah, no, the annual, he said, after furious man looking at, looking up thing on internet, is the word search and doing world space okay. quiz. So I see. Okay, good, good, okay. But after that one, that's it for this Eagle Extra for now, so I've got two mm. episodes worth. Okay, going back to Streetwise and the memory test thing reminds me that they had a reference in 112 for a book, a sort of an adventure book called... Well, that was going to be my ad of the month. Yeah, The Castle of Darkness. Sort of more of a spruik than an ad. Well, the thing is, it is called The Castle of Darkness, but the title was more widely released as the first book of the Grail Quest series. Hmm, which I'd not heard of. Oh, no, I, I remember the, seeing the books. I've recently got into uh, trying to find the old fighting fantasy books, some of which are quite hard to get now. Um, Grail Quest are another sort of ilk of that age. Once I saw the cover, I went, oh, that one. Because quite often in Eagle's bylines, we'll see things that don't quite tie in with records we can find. But the Grauquist series are quite well known, yes. So it's mm. like fighting fantasy in Arthurian times. That's what I sort of found when I did a wee bit of research. But yeah, it just sort of makes me a bit sad. It's just, it's been a while since I made this comment, but I'm going to make it again. It just seems, you know, an element of, of Eagle skirting something that might have been happening in, you know, out there in the world um, of kids and not quite grasping that this is what's happening <laughs> out there in the world of kids, that it's not all Boy Scouts and football pools and, and World Cups and Olympics that some kids are actually sort of 
they're getting into this new Dungeons and Dragons thing, or there are new hobbies mm. emerging on the scene, and you know, never mind. Oh, well, I thought that was my ad of the month, and for a whole one pound fifty, it is at pocket money price, Peter. Unlike some of the other things advertised, I am oh. looking at you at Casio Soccer Watch, fifteen pounds. Fifteen quid. Blimey, I don't know what that equivalated to in, in Pacific pesos no. in 1984, but probably the King's Ransom. Oh, uh, 45 bucks. Wow. Yeah, 45 bucks. Yeah. Could have get yourself a Casio Space Invaders calculator for a fraction of the price. <laughs> Speaking of Space Invaders calculator, there's ads for the Big K computer magazine. And, and also Captain Micro and Flash video comics. They're really big on those. Yeah, I, I don't get them. I, they, they probably didn't come on the slow boat from the UK. No. You go to your local video shop and you hire what is essentially a, a magazine on a video cassette, on a Maxell video cassette. And I guess it's a monthly thing. It sort of makes me think of the CD ROMs that you know they used to have stuck on kids' comics um, mm-hmm. of about 10 years ago um, that you could put into a computer and there'd be game demos and trailers for movies and that sort of thing I guess it's, that's it's, where it's, they're it's, going it's more than 10 years Peter I'm sure it's more than 10 years oh that's my frame of reference these days <laughs> we did after all skip from 2019 to 2021 didn't we yeah, we're, we're missing years yes and we're jury still out on 2021 to be honest um, <laughs> there's a DIY in space article harking back to Bruce McCandless's stock photo although there's not much actual DIY in it uh, mm. but talking about fixing a solar array thing uh, there's a small article on sealed knot reenactments. Again, things that happen in the background, but probably a bit alien to most people, but at least it ties into Dungeons and Dragons and you know, fighting monsters with swords. Mm. And Eagle invents Sudoku through a fairly well known puzzle at the time. Hmm. Um, speaking of what are you up to in your, in your bedroom, we've got some art by readers <laughs> this this. This month, yes, I have to ask it's... how old some of it is, but there you go. This is a rather good one. Alistair Hodgkins in 112, uh, sorry, 114 draws the collector, mm. uh, as they say, an old face. <laughs> yes, yes, how long did that sit in the drawer? And there's a rather good Mannix by Gary Norman of Snodland in Kent. It's not mm. a pony, is it? I assume so. It's England, everything's real, yes. <laughs> And my favourite, it's a rare thing for Eagle, is where they where they combine characters. Of course, it's mm-hmm. all all through 2018. But this one, we've got the Mick on and One Eye Jack, and he's Mick Bane, which is rather good. <laughs> yeah, he's got the eye patch and the little flying saucer, and he's drawn by Aidan Kukorin. Yes, I, I did like that one, I, Mick Bane. But well done, well done. <laughs> so your ad of the month was for the uh, game book. Yes. What was yours, Peter? My external ad of the month was for the Atari pole position, simply because ah. the visuals of of that game completely Proustian trigger for me. I remember mm-hmm. the game in the, in the video arcades more than I remember for a sort of home entertainment system. Internally, of course, there is an ad. I mean, do we mention it? Dave Hunt does an editorial in it as well. For oh, for things upcoming. Five, upcoming story. Well, well, we'll touch on that towards the end of the issue, I think. Maybe we keep our powder dry. Yeah, but the other thing to note on a similar vein is Scream issue 13 is out. So Ooh. we nearly have podcast parity, Peter. Nearly, nearly. Poor Scream. Not many issues left. No. 
Hmm. Speaking of the incredibly insane, but weirdly prescient. Indeed. It's One-Eyed Jack. Story by Jerry Finley Day. Art by John Cooper. Jack McBain. He's very possibly insane. Carry on. (laughs) In a solitary watchtower built high above the forests of New Mexico, two Texan-hatted firewardens spot a trail of smoke on the horizon and call in a spotter plane. But rather than spot a fire, they find a fire in the hole and a ground-to-air missile blows the plane to bits. And then a similar rocket blasts out of the undergrowth and takes out the tower. There are no witnesses, except a small boy playing in the forest. Play? Play or die? (laughs) No. Later, one-eyed Jack McBain and two-IC Kalucci head off in a helicopter as live bait for the suspected AOR training camp. AOR being the army of revolutionaries, being small, being, you know. For an hour they fly about before having to bail out as a rocket streaks towards them. They hit the ground and ambush the AOR reconnaissance party. And after scouting around, they find a completely kitted out military training camp and an exact replica of the White House? <laughs> yes. Almost, almost a photorealistic replica, I would say. They watch amazed as a full-scale attack is played out on the fake White House. It's a dress rehearsal for an attack on the president himself. To plan something like this, there must be a spy on the presidential staff. And Jack spots him, looking on from a safe location. Mac Whitman, he's the security leak. Planning to nab the traitor for interrogation, Jack and Colucci head towards an ammo dump to create a diversion. But as they're liberally splashing around gasoline, they're caught. Cover blown, they hightail it out of there and pinch a ground-to-air missile launcher and let loose a cavalcade of rockets towards the phony Pennsylvania Avenue Palace, blowing it to pieces. They then steal a tank destroyer and lay waste to the rest of the camp. Jack makes a grab for Whitman, but the man bites down on a suicide pill. And even though they've taken it out of the camp, Jack thinks they've failed. The AOR still have plans. That was two issues worth, people. When I jack his dance. That's insane. And are they setting up this AOR as a sort of smog? I, well, I think that's always intended to have on there, yes. Mm. Probably going to make some comments which will age badly, but oof, you know. <laughs> January 2021, folks, and we're looking at attacks on government buildings. Yeah, I think perhaps we might just chalk this one up for notice and... Who knows what state the world will be in by the time I've edited this episode together. <laughs> Crikey. Yeah, yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Issue 114. It's midnight on the mean streets of New York and a man is brutally stabbed with an invisible knife that was originally in battle. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. So, interestingly enough, when I jack, they can blow things to smithereens with rocket launchers and shoot people, but a knife is 80s knife crime, mutant hero turtles, cut-off point. There'll be photos on the Facebook page, people. This is the, the one item they've changed, apart from uh, a bit of smoking later on, which... It, it's, it's a very interesting thing to watch. I think at some point someone could do some work comparing the Eagle when I jack with the Battle when I jack, and, yeah, just seeing what's different, because it's, it's quite interesting. Hmm. Signs of the times. Indeed. Anyway, McBain and Colucci arrive too late to save the spy they've had inside the AOR. They discover a button the man has torn from his own jacket with hidden microfilm inside. A picture of a train. A train, Jack discovers from actual proper policing, is the treasury train 
to the Bulgan Vault at Fort Sabine. Yes. Jack races across town to catch the train and discovers it's being hijacked en route by AOR troops with heavy artillery. They then arrive at the fort, and then Jack hijacks one of the assault guns and turns it on the rest of the rebel army, but as Colucci arrives with backup, the AOR breach the fort wall. Arming themselves with RPGs and hand grenades, Jack and Colucci make short work of the remaining tanks. But the AOR shock troops are holed up inside with hostages. Jack takes the light plane that Colucci arrived in and crashes it on the billion building roof behind the defensive lines the AOR rebels have made. <gasps> and leaping out just in time, Jack sweeps through the building, mopping up all resistance. In the end, Jack is congratulated for breaking up the deadlock. But wonders Colucci, at what cost? <laughs> Next time, the AOR put a death contract out on one-eyed Jack. Oh my god, at what cost? Coherence? <laughs> Oh, no, it all makes sense as you read it, but trying to summarise One-Eyed Jack, I have to be honest, every yeah. week, whew, It's merciless. I don't know if it's One-Eyed Jack or if it's the fact that this is a nearly a decade-old strip at this point, but there's a pace and density to One-Eyed Jack. Is it Jerry Finley Day? I mean, we've commented on Dracula file and Scream. That's dead yeah. too. That yeah. boots along. And we, we came across this with the actions as well that we've read over the years. Yes. Whew. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's completely different and hard to reconcile with the rest of Eagle. Mm. But it's interesting to see Jack do his own gear shift with a consistent enemy, and it's just as madcap as before. But now it's an action film rather than a police procedural. Yeah, yeah, because he's not a cop anymore, is he? He's he's no. ended in his badge. I guess having a, a stable enemy is better than him being a wanderer vigilante, which is yes. A loose cannon. It's yeah, a, he, he's yeah. a loose cannon that's at least pointed in a uh, consistent direction. Yeah, because then that doesn't make him much better than the guys he was after. No, no. <sighs> uh, but again, that was always the thing with Judge Dredd. You, know, mm. you can have your fascist be a hero if the villains are somehow worse. Yeah, yeah. Hey! <laughs> Urban insurrection, it still is oddly precedent. Mm. But speaking does. of the news, Pete... Yes, indeed. It's News Team by the creators of News Team, Alan Hebden and Benjo, doing pretty good Jose Ortiz likeness. Mm. Now, as you recall, News Team are in Sydney, Australia, covering the visit of a Chinese delegation, timely, where lead teamer Jerry Maddox has been hospitalised by a sniper bullet meant for the Aussie premiere. And now the sniper wants Jerry, but Jerry won't be cowed and he refuses a police escort. This joker is news, and I'm going to report it. He might be a sitting target, but he'll be one that hits back. Even the rest of news team think it's a risk, but Rats follows along, fetching a dummy fit for Jerry, shoplifting it, of course, and they dress it and plant it in their car, one-eyed Jack style. Yeah, I was going to say, they've obviously done a couple of stories set in New York. Yes. <laughs> sure enough, as they leave the hospital car park, the dummy's head explodes from a shot. All the while, Kurt is filming the culprit. Uh, they ID him and chase him to a building site. The sniper returns fire, but Rats opens his red box and produces... Well, what else does he have in his red box? But a shooter. <laughs> How big is this red box? <laughs> as big as it needs to be. It's a blunderbuss. It's Because <laughs> it's not a sawn-off shotgun, no. Jerry runs towards the sniper, gun blazing, and from his cover, he blasts out a stairwell the villain is perched on. Injured in the rubble, the sniper is neutralised. Who knows where he's from? What its name is, what he had for breakfast, because it's another rap for news team. 
News team. Um, the News assassin team. looks like it. He looks like a supply teacher from Grocery Street Comp. Sorry, it's a supply creature from Grocery Street Comp. <laughs> I knew it. Actually, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, one-eyed Jack makes reference to burp guns, and Jerry's carrying obviously not a sawn of shotgun, but a blunderbuss. I wonder if changing the names of things is also part of the you know sanding the rough edges off for the younger readers. I hadn't thought of that till you mentioned it, but it's a good point. Hmm, yes, maybe, maybe, I mean, it's like a shotgun's pretty well known. Uh, I don't know, I just burped gun, I couldn't quite work out what that was, I made a note about it, but, you know, we hmm. do railroad over our notes sometimes, listeners. Okay, folks, apologies for the background noise, I've got a little bit of um, atmospheric disturbance, in other words, rain, but issue 113. Uh, we're now in Canada to cover the Lumber Wars. Who knew about those? For Jeff Chanley, Channel 3 News Chicago. In the town of Rawlins in the Canadian Rockies, there's skullduggery among the lumberjacks. News team interview Sam's Lumber, who lost a man last week in an accident. Was it an accident? Sam's Lumber think it was murder. Sabotage. By new big city interloper, Rico Lumber. Mr. Rico, of the Lumber, isn't fielding inquiries, so news team travel up to the mill site facing one of Sam's big rigs on the narrow road up the mountain. They back up to let it pass. But suddenly, a chain snaps on the truck, and tons of logs roll off, taking the truck with it and nearly the driver too, but for Jerry's superhuman quick actions. The chain on the truck, it was discovered, was half-sawed, and they return to Sam's to report it. But at the yard, a grabbing crate is abandoned just as its claw swings to strike a log chute, smashing it and sending its log straight towards CB. I was going to say, what do you call a flat CB? Does she become CD? <laughs> Jerry knocks CB clear. Of course he does. While the others round up the saboteur. Sure enough, he is one of Rico's men. But Sam's guys are after woodman justice, because the local cops are also in Rico's payroll. Under threat, the goon reveals Rico's next plan, to wait for the wind to change, so a, a lit forest fire can be directed at Sam's mill. Forest fires in Canada. We put this within the walk or die universe. I don't know. Oh, 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 oh dear, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> News team, go into action. As Sam and his men round on Rico's base, CB and Jerry intercept the channel of local news station QYKW and put out a bogus weather forecast. Sam and Rico face off, but a gloating Rico, who's still listening to the radio, points out a fire on the ridge above them, gleefully expecting you know, the weather to be in only to set head towards his own mill. Yes. Rico's mill is burned down. Maybe some men die, I don't know. He's ruined financially. Big Wood is driven out of Orleans. Go, news team. Carol! Because <laughs> he's not the first person to get confused with easterly and westerly winds. Because they used to really mess with my head as a kid. What the difference between them or the winds themselves? Because down where I'm from, Norwesterlies are menace. They're the fern wind, which is a really hot wind you get in Spain as well. That easterly winds blow to the west. Oh, they blow yeah. from the. I, I, just as a kid, that used to miss them. Easterly winds blow to the west. Westerly yeah. winds blow to the east. Doesn't bear thinking about. Which direction does a southerly wind go? North. <laughs> what? <laughs> I had a friend who would freeze in his tracks if you told him that you could chop a tree down and then chop it up. <laughs> it's that kind of thing, very much yeah. so. Anyway. Eric Morecambe, we salute you. 
Charles Adams of Euronews Luxembourg wants news team to cover the unravelling situation in Santa Rica. El Presidente complains of bad foreign press, fake news. So news team, <laughs> being independent, are trusted to be more neutral. I found this interesting. I mean, we did sort of discuss this about, you know, what is news team? They're not attached to a network. But here we have a clear example of why news team are sought after. Plus, of course, they get results, Dave. They get results. Yeah, they do. Yes. They, they leave a body count behind them, but they get results. There's never a confirmed body count. Yeah. That's not reported for some reason. <laughs> I was going to say, you tell the story. <laughs> the story changes. Yes. So they arrive and are met by a man called Delgado. Doesn't sound sinister at all. No. From the government press office. But it's a setup. All military action that they witness as they travel through town is explained away as being maneuvers. An explosion in the shanty town is a gas stove exploding. A local peasant gives very obviously scripted answers to questions, and when CB talks to the local kids and gets the record straight about the rebel situation there, her tape recorder is shot up by mistake by a discharging rifle. Later, Delgado sees CB is invited to an interview with El Presidente herself. Only she can go to it. Jerry and Kurt are so keen, and en route, CB and Delgado are met on the road by hooded rebels. Is it a kidnap? Next week says it is. Yes. Tune in next week. Yes, very much so. And that's Peter, just without looking back at the page, how many how many masked rebels are there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, uh, do I count myself? Um, <laughs> it's pretty standard news team fair. I, I do like how we're getting quite metal with it, though. Although, just to bring your day down, the last episode is done by Paul Gascoigne. The interchange between these guys doing their Otises is seamless. Yes. Yes, of course. And Paul Gascoigne has done News Team before. He did it for the Summer Special, I think? Possibly, yes. I, I, I tend to lose track. Yeah. I always thought it was Otis straight through the run when I was younger, mm. so... Mm. Yeah. And, of course, I, I know Paul Gascoigne more for his football career. So. Yeah, well, that's true. I will, we will never tire of that joke. Uh, it's a shame CB is proving to be a bit of a peril monkey. It's mm. it's not overstated yet, but time will tell. They never say what CB stands for. Uh, it does get mentioned at some point, I believe. Oh, does it? Uh, yeah. I always thought it was a sort of, you want to say cute blonde, but you're not going to say cute blonde. Well, it's a, probably a bit like M Appeal, mm. if you've heard that story. Yeah. Listeners, it's but, M Appeal. Yeah, male appeal. Yeah, yeah. It's Colin Baker, isn't it? <laughs> the blonde curls crash zoom yeah 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 you think that flouncy blouse is feminine no it's just it's just cold change my dear it seems not a moment too soon <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, that's rather good um, hang on wait a minute going back to the first episode it's Kathy Biltmore sweet your feet oh I see yes which in itself is a bit suspect too. So, mm, built more. Oh my god! Take us to the next story, please, Dave. Speaking <laughs> of funny things happening in foreign climes, Peter, Crow Street Comp. <laughs> story by Fred Baker, art by Rex Archer. Previously on Crow Street Comp, the kids are off holidaying in sunny Spain, and hilarity ensues. 
but Clobber and Creeper have tailed friendly teacher Mr. Babbitt to a casino where he spends a great deal of time and the boys confront him about his gambling addiction. This time, Babbitt leads the boys back into the hotel with a casino, but not into the gambling den, but into the studio of the portrait artist upstairs, Jose Cortoza, where he's commissioned a portrait of the girl he saved from a mugging. No, where he's commissioned a painting <laughs> of himself for his mum. But Babbitt acknowledges the snoops meant well. Meanwhile, Boo Boo and Hot Lips try to rustle up the boys for an evening at the hotel disco. Sugar Ray is still too sunburnt, but Fatso Parsons is keen and does an impromptu boogie in his swimming trunks, truffle shuffle style, and gets teased about his weight. Oh my god, it's so very in between his movie, isn't it? Right now. Uh, It's originally from The Goonies, but yes. Oh yes, the shuffle. Carry on. Confidence already knocked, the disco does not go well for Fatso, and more teasing ensues, and as the last few days of the holiday wear on, a despondent Parsons stops eating and focuses on his new book, Lose Weight Fast. And once Aww. again, Eagle has invented the fasting diet craze. Mm, and body shaming. Well, I think that's always been around there, but, but you know. Yeah, true, yeah. That's yeah. so. The next issue, the holiday is finally over, and on the flight home, Parsons is still not eating. That night, we have a montage of people coming home, in which Creeper seems to be the only sane one amongst them all. But when Clobber <laughs> Gates returns to his house, he finds the place is a right mess. Nesta tidied it all up. Eventually his dad comes home with a strange woman in tow. This is Mrs. Lloyd, apparently. She and Clobber's dad have been seeing each other. And they'll be getting married next week. Crikey, she moves fast. Mm. It seems that the Mrs. C to B wants Clobber out, but doesn't mind him skivvying and making the tea till he does. Clobber has his own ideas. The next day, back at school, neither Clobber or Fatso had paid their dinner money for next term. Both claim to be on a diet. But Clobber later confides to his fasting friend that he's fled from his family, and Fatso, ever friendly, furnishes his former foe with fine foods from his furtive fodder fund, i.e. a hot dog from his school bag. To keep it secret though, I've been cutting down a bit. Us Crow Street kids have to stick together. And I have to admit, while it's not Zamo chasing a dragon, between problem gambling and fat shaming, we've got a bit of the old Crow Street social commentary, mm-hmm. and with Clobber owning up to Parsons, Parsons is turning into a more interesting character than just a Billy Bunter. Mm. These kids are seniors now, are they? Or are they... Fifth form. Not? Fifth yeah, form. Sort of, Fifth year. Yeah. Maybe it's just me, but as you get as you get older in the school, those ties get stronger. One hopes so. Next issue, Crow Street is a buzz with rumours Clobber is getting married and there's a wonderful Chinese whispers montage of the story getting spread. <laughs> Clobber's getting married. Yes. <laughs> the, the Clobber's running away from home to get married. But these tall tales get nipped in the bud when Clobber Senior turns up at school to confront his runaway son. Plans are made for Clobber to stay with an uncle while across town, Fatso is busted in a cake shop by Sugar Ray and Crackers Kent. And later that night, as Parsons tries to go for a healthy jog, Sugar and Crackers chase him into a nearby mall. Note for US listeners. No, not what you're thinking. Yeah, okay. Um, Where he gets spotted by a gang of toughs from a rival school who see him as easy pickings. The toughs start shoving Fatso about, and fearing a thumping, the terrified boy lashes out and flattens one of his assailants fleeing the arcade as fast as his little legs will carry him. 
Sugar and Crackers spot him but decide discretion is the better part of valour when they see the gang chasing him. Pricks. Fatso mm. flees to a nearby construction site and falls down a dark hole. Meanwhile, Clobber is moving in with his uncle Sid and Aunt Elsie. His new room is very nice and his hosts are very welcoming. As the evening wears on and Edward Parsons' parents begin to worry, the police are called. And the next morning, the kids hear their friend is missing and Clobber and Creeper rally the troops to form a search party. Next week, the word goes out, find Fatso. So they haven't actually taken on board their part in shame. But not not bad at all. Some very chunky themes. Nice to be back home uh, and not on on summer holiday. I was going to say, if he's on a diet, Fatso is best to keep his distance from crackers and sugar. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Well, you would anyway. Well, interesting. uh, Clobber's turning into this amiable character and they're just becoming more obnoxious as time wears on. Mm. There's barely two pages of your actual school going on. I think they've given up all pretense of it being about a class in school, almost. Look, I don't mind. As you get older, the drama is less about school. They're a social group now. Yeah, but it's a social group of maybe four at once. I don't know if anyone else is going to get any character development before the series ends. No, they're like Doctor Who aliens. You can't really have more than three in a scene. Yeah, that's true. I did like the Chinese whispers thing, though. That was quite fun. Yeah, that was was, was cool. Not a bad month, actually, for, for Crow Street. You've got the problem gambling thing, you've got the bullying, you've got the body shaming issues, you've got Image. reconstituted yeah. families and running away. You know, Crow Street is more relevant than many of the stories in Eagle. It's well grounded in its reality. Mm. Mm. No, I appreciate that. Because <laughs> from that you get something which is not very real, I hope. <laughs> Hopefully not. And it's Mannix, Operation Rat's Nest. Uh, we're wrapping up this month. Script by Alan Grant, art by Carmona. British intelligence's crack armed forces have infiltrated the underwater base of Smog in the latest stage of what now seems an infinite war. But with Android Agent Mannix neutralising the site, we are entering its endgame. Mm-hmm. The British nuclear submarine Conger speeds from the Rat's Nest, and with their arsenal of sheds, Depleting rapidly due to Mannix, Smog send a craft out on a kamikaze course to destroy the submarine. Did you say arsenal of sheds? Yes. Okay. Mm. Just checking. <laughs> I do like the Smog captain's hat. Not sure about the yeah. hat. They're always on about their sheds. So there's the, they've got docks in this in this base and all their armaments are in it. But they're just all referred to as sheds, which is sort of comedic. Okay. I miss that totally. Meanwhile, Maddox reaches the last offensive shed and, seeing the craft, takes it out with Smog's last heavy gun before it can meet its target. Conger is free. Further into Smog control, leather-clad Director Supreme Gretel Herzog looks on, ordering her remaining forces to close in. Maddox's cannon takes out more Smog men, but he's suddenly struck by a scrambling gun by Herzog's men. As he's incapacitated by the sonic weapon, his human comrades see the gun fall silent and scale the shared wall to investigate. And as they radio the director, smog troopers are themselves taken out one by one. Mannix awakens and smashes the sonic disruptor. And as the rest of the crew pass the docks, Herzog makes for her secret escape route. You've got to have a secret escape route, Dave. Yeah. Does she blow up the planet on the way? No. And note to all listeners that Peter's prejudices are showing it could be rubber as much as leather. Mm, could be, could be. <laughs> yes. but I think I think leather's a lot 
quieter. I mean, rubber, you'd hear her coming. <laughs> and that's not very director-like. Telk the whole space. Mannix and the SBS unit fight their way through the Herzog's lair and discover her gone. You're right. <laughs> Just got a soundtrack of squeaking in my <laughs> <laughs> The android switches to X-ray mode, spotting a hidden stairway and full power to obliterate wall. He smashes through. Ahead, Herzog hears the noise of the approaching Mannix. Maybe he's in the rubber. Uh, she's at the bottom <laughs> of the spiral staircase, but the robot simply vaults the drop. His orders are to take the director alive, so he produces a tranquilizer dart, shaking off a bullet from Herzog's remaining bodyguard, and blows the dart home to its target. The henchman moves to shoot the director dead before she can be captured, but, and I quote, Mannix's incredible speed beats the bullet, and the henchman <laughs> is taken out. X-ray vision again reveals Herzog's waiting fast boat, but Mannix knows that Smog will not allow her to be taken from the island alive. So be prepared to fight the final battle. The fast boat is launched, and there's a firefight as the SBS boat crew return the smog gun assault. Mannix spots their fuel dump and hurls a grenade into the middle of it. We see some poor smog agent bravely, though he's still a bad one, retrieve mm-hmm. the missile, but become ground zero for the ensuing inferno. The fast boat just makes it, and the explosion's wake does the rest. Conga picks them up, the rat's nest has been destroyed, and Herzog is in the hands of British intelligence. It's a blow from which Smog will never recover. Next week, no Mannix. Next week, Dave. Yes. Bloodfang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so excited. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Mannix, though, Mannix, before we finish this, I, I really have enjoyed Mannix having Smog as an enemy. Hmm. Just comparing it with the economy of One-Eyed Jack, Mannix has been like Danny Pike. And you've had a f- six-week punch-up between Mannix taking out the space. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's there are big chunky things that are ending this issue that have taken a long time to get there. Now, I just want to acknowledge that because when we summarise it, it sort of probably just sounds like a a big wall of words happening. I, it's quite an interesting month. I hadn't thought about it till I was hearing us talk about it so much. I think in Mannix's defence, that is all that happens. I think. I think I did a pretty good summary. Um, oh no, but, no you but, did. You did. It's 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 all action. There's not a lot of dialogue being wasted, and if there's dialogue there, it's somewhat expository. And actually, yes, that's not so necessary because Carmona does a bang up job at illustrating what's going on. That's true, and it and it flows and it punches along and it's powerful. It just probably takes longer to describe by a significant margin mm. than it does to see. Yeah, but I I really did like the idea in this this run of stories of Mannix having human backup. And a team supporting Mannix and Mannix interacting with the team. Yeah, I do appreciate that. Yeah, he has been a little bit of a lone wolf. and Yeah. It, it makes the story bigger if there's more people involved. Yeah, I've forgotten the name of the agent. Uh, it's not Scobie or something like that, who repels up the shed. Mm. Yeah, I thought, oh, I hope he makes it. I can't remember whether I know who this guy is. But yeah, it was just a wee moment. Because yeah, up until now, Mannix has the strength of this and X-ray vision, and as we can see, he's faster than a speeding bullet. Mm. It doesn't quite humanise him, but it does humanise mm. the situation. Yes, exactly. I know Mannix will return, mm-hmm. but I think this has been a good send-off for now. Yeah, yeah. It's been your action man toy in a comic strip, which is probably 
where Manic should have gone a wee while beforehand. The espionage thing in the photo strips was fine, but it was showing its limitations as well. Yes. Um, and in the comic, it's had a new life, which is great. Volcano notwithstanding. Yep, <laughs> very much so. So with that in mind, Peter, y- your thoughts for the month and best and worst? Any feelings? What do you reckon? Oh, and um, yes, Gretel Herzog, squeaky itty squeak. Um, mm. <laughs> Prepubescent boys, hey, hello. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, most improved is probably Crow Street Comp. Okay. I might give best of the month to Mannix. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, goes to Mannix. It's a very tricky month because everything's punching along quite well and doing quite dense things. Mm, but it's a nice through line. Uh, and yeah. the sort of news team is just so choppy. And I mean, it's, it's Gonzo, <laughs> Gonzo news team. But Mannix is boys' action fun. It's, yes. I, I get the feeling that the Eagle is sort of having a, a pitch at, at being battle. I hadn't thought about it until we described it, but uh, you, you know, Dan Deer, whoa! Get off the planet! Blow that! Blow up the planet! Hmm. One-eyed Jack! Whoa! Get off! Get out of the White House! Blow up the White House! Mannix! <laughs> blow everything up! Super Soldier! Pretty much! Yeah! And how about your Worcesterist? Um, Amstor is is very low-hanging fruit. It is, it is, but I really did like the artwork in No Intelligent Life. I know I had a better story than that title than that, but that's what it's going to be called by me. Yeah. Um. I sort of didn't mind the conceit of greatest power in the universe, but that's that's as long as you could extend it. Yes. You, you, you couldn't do anything more with it. And some of its uh, nuances were a little bit suspect. Mm. Bottom. I'm just getting a little bit tired of news team, really. Oh, okay. Fair enough. It's a, it's a strip that has four main characters, that it, three of which it really doesn't know what to do with. Yeah. I mean, that's a shame. And and with everything else building and building or or doing its thing, it pumping along at two part stories probably is a little bit. Hmm. It's showing its limitations in what it is. Yeah, it's not bad. It's just you sort of know what you're going to get, and you're either in or you're not. No, fair enough. What about you? I, 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 again, it's a hard month, but my best I think is Danny Pike. The build up to 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 a crescendo, which is mm-hmm. about to start. You know, it, it's 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 the long game playing out well. And it helps that everyone in Danny Pike has something to do. Yes. Just to mirror your point about the news team. You know, you know. apart from George the, the itinerant gypsy, he only appears for a handful of times, so he's just this obligatory side character. Mm. Everyone is in their place and their, you know, everything starts next week, but it's building up to sell you that. And I'm, I'm going to give Amster a, a buy because it's too much of an easy target. I'm actually going to say Dan Dare is, is my worst. And it's it's hard to say it with Ian Kennedy's lovely art, but the story's just been treading water. <laughs> so to speak, in a piranha-infested lake. Literally, in some cases. And the Mekon's going, I'm sick of this now, just blow up the planet, I'm off. So it's sitting there going, mm. yeah, I sort of... I, I feel you, man. I feel you, green dude. There is a sense of, let's just tie this up. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've been here before with Dare... Yes, you've you've been hearing the marking time until such a point as they stop. Right. But mm. um, new story next time. Yes. We'll see what happens with that. Dave Hunt's very excited about it. They've got an advertisement in it um, with a visual indication of what we're up for. The art of which is actually far less superior than the actual art we're going to get. I'm not sure whether that's Jim Bakey artwork or whether it was sort of test artwork. It might be test artwork or something. Yeah. Because the- it's, it's a novel concept... 
it's basically the littlest hobo <laughs> with a tyrannosaurus. Not. It is not. Dave Hunt says, and I quote, The tyrannosaur screamed his arrival into the world. These are the dramatic words which start a thrilling new story appearing in Eagle next week. It's a story with a big difference in that its main character features a primeval animal which roamed Earth 100 million years ago. The story is called Bloodfang, and I can promise you many surprises and much excitement as the adventure develops over the coming issues. Mm. It's a good. So watch the space, dear listener. Along with that, next time, we have a new Dan Dare adventure. We have a new Doomlord adventure. We have a very strange Amstor <laughs> computer adventure. Which in, in itself is not strange, I suppose. No. Clobber gets some protégés. And Bloodfang. <laughs> and oh, we have a minor eagle scandal to uncover. Excellent. We haven't had one of those for a while. <laughs> so until then, uh, it's good night from me. And it's a very good night from me. Keep safe and well. Indeed. Good, good night. Mr. Bum, this is the band, yeah. <laughs> Sunshine.